Welcome to the Ab Initio podcast series, a Bankless Legal Guild production. If you are a lawyer, accountant, or tax professional, you're likely getting an increased number of questions from clients about cryptocurrencies, DAOs, and the blockchain in general. The purpose of this podcast is to help you answer these questions by having our established expert guests discuss current legal issues and cases on a regular basis. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be regarded as legal or financial advice. And now your host, Mike Rabinovich, aka Comeback Kid on Discord. In this episode of the Ab Initio Bankless Legal Guild podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Crystal, a founding member of JournaDAO, a strategic advisor for Fochur and an academic studying Tantra Yoga and Tibetan Buddhism. She focuses on leveraging decentralization for artists, writers, journalists, activists, and academics to help them create autonomous, regenerative, and sustainable ecosystems so they can thrive in our patriarchal economy. Over her career as a photojournalist, she has won numerous awards, scholarships, fellowships, and grants. In today's episode, we discuss the role of journalism in Web3, the impact of censorship on various platforms, the role of privacy in the transparent world of the blockchain, and much more. Let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Crystal. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. And I'd like to start for the members of our audience that are not familiar with your work uh, about your journey to Web3, where you started and the stops along the way that got you to where you are today at JournaDAO. Sure. Um, I first came to Web3 technology after Occupy Wall Street. Um, it was the first time I'd ever seen breaking news on Twitter. So the And the movement itself kind of fascinated me. And then I saw some people on blogs talking about this thing called Bitcoin. So I kind of just, as a journalist, I always just pay attention to what people are talking about, more out of curiosity than anything. Um, And then I was working with a colleague who is based in Pakistan, and she was Gmailing me. And I'm like, you can't be sending me messages through Gmail right now um, with sensitive news stuff. So I, um, explored working with encrypted email technology. It was a, it was a protocol called BitMessage, which was P2P encrypted communications, and it was decentralized and trustless. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. So I figured it out. And then I sent her the information to do it on her end and she could not figure it out. So, um, and, but that kind of, once I worked with the tech, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then I started watching Bitcoin actively at about $47 a coin. And to buy it, you had to like send an envelope of cash to some address in New York City. I was like, no, that's not a thing. (laughs) So I kind of regret not taking that risk. And then I was part of a local hackerspace um, where I used to live. And we would do these weekly workshops. And the um, guy that ran the space was like, hey, we're going to make our own currency. So we deployed our own coins on the time, I think it was AntShares, it became Neo. And then I got it. And then um, they started this really adorable little business. It's kind of like Silicon Valley, HBO. And um, they asked me to come on board and deal with the humans. So then I started working um, in community management on Discord. It was 2017. And um, kind of been in and out of it ever since. And then I guess about twenty, late 2020, I started noticing again that conversation was happening across multiple communities at scale about NFTs. And that was the tech we'd worked at in the hackerspace. So got back into the conversation and I applied for a job with Unlock Protocol as their community manager. 
And that got me back like active into the space. Um, and I worked with them for about nine months. And then in May, I was trying to figure out if I was going to stay in this space at all. And I stumbled into Journo Down. I was like, oh, these are my people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great finding your tribe, isn't it? Oh, it's so refreshing, especially in technology. I mean, it's really weird to find a bunch of like working and former working journalists who are just as, um, who have the same sense of humor as I do and find them virtually. It's just really weird. So I, I agree. And I mean, my, I won't name the Dow, but my first foray was into a Dow that felt like that bus was pretty full. And then I was fortunate to stumble onto Bankless and joined their legal guild and, uh, which, and I knew right away right? That, that was, that was my tribe, one of my tribes, we all have a few. And so I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. So speaking of, of journalism and, and what you've spent a lot of your career doing as a photojournalist, where does it fit in web three? Mm, that's such a big question. And one that we like debate all the time at JournoDAO. Um, I think my like immediate and most pressing view of the role right now um, is crafting the message and bridging the gaps in between messaging. I mean, mainstream media outlets right now don't have language to understand what we're doing. So by the time it hits print in quotation marks, print, um, you know, it, it's gone through so many filters and so many different biases that it's just the, the story's missed. So I think like right now, a huge role for journalism in Web3 is just understanding what Web3 is and for journalists to actually use the technology so they can accurately report on it and create language for it. Um, sometimes I feel like that is also kind of a good thing that mainstream media is missing what's happening underneath the surface of all the cartoon JPEGs and the scams and all the, the garbage, because there's a lot of garbage in this space. Underneath is this, you know, this regeneration of ecosystems that can replace or at least be competitive in some way to the capitalistic systems that we're so used to. So I feel like as the mainstream media is missing the point, we're also able to build something underneath as long as that narrative doesn't then dictate legislation, which makes it difficult to create these ecosystems we're creating. Um. And in the long term, I think that, you know, Web3 has the ability to restore sustainability to media outlets, especially on the local level. If we can figure out a way to decentralize local media and reconnect community with the journalists reporting on the communities through Web3 technology, I think that is the thing that on the long term will help move the needle towards this, towards a more healthy relationship with news for everyone. You know, right now, 74% of the country doesn't trust the media they consume, which is probably, you know, it's an accurate mistrust. So, Well, that's a great segue into my next question. One of the subjects that has received a lot of attention is the agenda setting theory. My question is, first, if you could define it for our audience, and secondly, can it still exist where decentralization reigns? Hmm. Again, such a good question. I'm just going to read off of Wikipedia because so for me, agenda setting theory, um, basically it's the ability of news media to influence the importance placed on topics of the public agenda. And the way that I came to this theory is when I was at journalism school at, um, UNC Chapel Hill, my history professor, history of journalism, um, 
was the man that created that theory. And I had no idea. I barely knew what the theory was. I, I was familiar with Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent, which is a very similar concept. Um, and I would just go hang out in his office to edit papers and he would like take my paper and he would rip it apart and then like literally tape it back together. I mean, he was old school. And we began chatting and I noticed these PhD students would be in his office measuring words on the New York Times broadsheet, trying to find bias based biases based on how much real estate on the front page above the fold was given to certain stories. So that really got me into media agenda setting theory. It's, it's, it's hard though. Like if we can figure out a way to, you know, I think what, one of the things that journalists miss is that mainstream journalism is that the blockchain is really just a, it's cryptography. So you can see everything. It's all out in the open. So it opens up a whole new area for things like DAOs like Factland to emerge where they can crowdsource fact-checking. Um, so that, that really hasn't been something that we've seen before. And if DAOs like that can reach a tipping point of mass adoption, then there's enough scale to impact broad swaths of the media, then we have a direct tool to fight against the media's ability to set that narrative. And then that narrative really does dictate the way people who aren't in this ecosystem consume and create opinions about what we do here. And I mean, we're seeing this with Gen Z too. Like the fact that Gen Z doesn't use Google as a search engine, they use TikTok as a search engine. They want P2P news, peer-to-peer news generated by people like themselves, and they are completely bypassing mainstream media altogether. And that should be like a huge eye-opener for editorial outlets and you know a real good come to Jesus moment for the whole industry that this coming generation isn't going to even participate in these narratives that are being put out. So turning to the elephant in the room, censorship, that you and I had started this discussion with uh, when we first started to speak, you know, it's been the core essential issue for journalism since the advent of the free press. What are the potential opportunities and challenges it faces in Web3 in the context of what you just told me? Again, I think it, you know, it comes back to that transparency. Because transparency is such a core ethos of Web3, we can naturally see it spill over into journalism. Like, again, like DAOs, like Fackland and JournoDAO can play a role in ensuring that censorship isn't allowed to exist in a decentralized future for the news. Um, we can do that through, you know, education, outreach to journalists, training media outlets on how to do fact checking that is on chain. So then everybody can see this was fact checked in a certain way, you know, by these people. But one of the things like, I think it's interesting with censorship that we're really like, we touch into the first amendment, like, and I think I might be dovetailing into, you know, where this conversation might be going after this question, but the first amendment itself. And I never thought I would say this. This is what fascinates me. Like the first amendment, I don't think, or I know that it wasn't meant or designed to anticipate what happens when you have a large population that consumes junk news and is disinformed across the board. And then you have this huge tsunami of disinformation out there. Plus you have weaponized algorithms in the hands of kleptocrats and we need to take a really hard look at the role of censorship in that type of an environment. And we're about to actually have to do it if Musk does buy Twitter, which it looks like it's going to happen. Because once they remove the guardrails to hate speech, 
we're all going to have to take a really long, hard look at the role of censorship. And I never thought I would say that before 2016. If you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I would have been on the polar opposite of that opinion. But I think we're all about to have a really rude awakening here, probably in the next month. I think that's a great observation, Crystal, because, you know, in legal terms, this comes to the to that debate as to whether you're a constitutionalist and you believe that the constitution should be applied as it was written when it was written by the founding fathers, uh, as opposed to taking into account modern developments. Um, and again, that happens in religion as well, not just in, in, in censorship and free press. So that's, that's a really interesting uh, perspective. And it would be really interesting to see how long is it going to be before Elon Musk or whoever he appoints to run Twitter is going to actually be compelled to add some guardrails, or if at all. And like you, if there's really no guardrails, and given the content that's being consumed today and produced, and you know it's it's a lack of reliability, often we're entering into very interesting times. Now, in terms of your own experience, has censorship been a factor in Discord and Telegram, the two most popular platforms in, in Web three, as far as you can tell? I haven't really, because I haven't used Discord or Telegram in any way that would be like politically sensitive, like as a journalist, um, I've just used it in community building. Um, there's times where I've had to be the censor in a community. And that's interesting because I always want to cultivate space for people to have debate and conversation, but I have to, to watch that conversation and make sure that um, a line's not crossed where people are harmed. So, you know, if that happens then I have to step in and, shut the conversation down, um, which is an interesting role to be in, especially in a virtual world. But no, I mean, with these platforms being so centralized, um, like I, for journalists that I would communicate with, um, granted, most of that was through encrypted email, but it would be really difficult um, to communicate on these platforms in, in a politically sensitive way because they are centralized. It just would make me so uncomfortable. What's your take on legal liability and whether a platform is a utility or not? Uh, have you come across any instances where something posted on Discord or, or on Telegram or any of the other platform has led to lawsuits or legal liability or claims of legal liability? Knock on wood, I have not had to think like that. Um, it is in my thought bubble, though. Um, especially with, um, with, you know, what's happening with tornado cash. And this goes back to, you know, code as free speech. So no, I have not had to worry about that, but it is something that does, you know, stay in the back of your mind, especially in the context of journalism, because, you know, liability is an issue, you know, all those things are issues. And it's, it's also another interesting debate because, you know, does the person that run the platform, are you responsible for how the platform's used? In a small context, maybe in a walled garden, yes, but in a, as a protocol, no. So, you know, anybody can use a protocol, anybody can fork Tornado Cash and run with it. So there's needs to be new language in our laws that really understands the differences between protocols and platforms, who runs what, who's responsible for what. Um, as a community manager, I just make sure that, and granted, I've been in very positive communities, so I haven't had to really worry about this, but I just make sure that um, certain things aren't said. And actually, in one of the communities, we did have a tokenization 
um, as part of the, the community in the DAO. And we did have to walk a line at that point as to what we could say so that we weren't viewed by the SEC as promoting a token and entering into that whole web of nastiness. So it, in actually, so yeah, in that context, I was mindful on both Twitter and Discord about how I had to word things so that my boss wouldn't get sued. So that actually is, that is a considerate considerization when, when you bring tokenization, not necessarily in like an, a libel situation. That goes back to your previous comment. This is a classic example or of the new versus the old in lacking a common language to discuss the issues. But as a follow-up to my last questions, have you noticed any censorship as a factor in the various DAOs that you have played a role or participated in? I have not. Um, again, the communities that I've been in um, usually you know, are in the impact DAO space. So I haven't really seen censorship as an issue. Now, one thing I do worry about is self-censorship. You know, As we get deeper down into these legal rabbit holes, where people can be liable for their code or for things that are said um, out of their control, really, um, then we do have to worry about self-censorship. And that's a whole other can of worms, especially as a journalist. Um, it's where it really does matter, you know, how we define censorship and how we consume this information. And if it's centralized, there is more self-censorship, I believe. In a decentralized world where I don't have to worry about that gatekeeper, I don't have to self-censor as much. So I think that this is very closely tied to the notion of privacy, which leads to my next question. Uh, if you know you have privacy, then you're not as concerned about uh, censoring oneself. But how do we protect privacy in, a, in the transparent world of the blockchain? Oh, I could talk about that one for hours. Um, that's really actually why I joined the hackerspace was because of privacy issues. I wanted to learn more about protecting my own privacy so I would not self-censor. Um, I think that it comes down to your authenticity as well. Like in a decentralized world, I mean, you can take the anonymous route and that really is a beast all in and of itself to figure out how to be anonymous on blockchain. Or you just have to be completely transparent in what you write and how you write it and just own your words. Um, now when we get into things like, you know, transactions and, and wallet issues, um, that, you know, that's a different type of privacy. You, you're going to want to protect yourself based on, you know, your risk factors, you know, financial censorship is a huge issue. And those that are dealing in that space where either, you know, for politics or like OnlyFans, like OnlyFans got shut down and got censored from the bank aspect because the banks were no longer... I think it was MasterCard, wouldn't process their transactions. So they got censored through finance. So blockchain does allow for that type of censorship to be removed. Um, I kind of go both ways with privacy in, in blockchain. I mean, there's, I keep on, I, I try to inform myself as much as possible about how to be completely anonymous if I ever had to be. I know I'd be really bad at that. I'm like the Tina Fey of all of this. Like I would totally screw that up and would be found instantly. But I still like to know the technology and know that it exists so that if we ever do have to pivot, you know, if political forces change and you have to pivot, then you, we really do need to know how to use blockchain from a privacy perspective too. It leads me to one of kind of the issues that I think about a lot and that education there's a lot of talk about onboarding three, four, five billion people, whatever the numbers are, onto Web3. But yet, 
80% of the people, you know, in the DAOs don't even know how to set up a digital wallet. So how are you going to, you know, be able to like leverage the tools of privacy uh, in order to, to be able to protect yourself if you're having a challenge setting up your MetaMask? But that's a larger discussion in terms of, and that's what I think the roles of, of media DAOs like Bankless and like Journal DAO uh, is in terms of really doing a lot of education and creating transparency. So the people that we intend to join this revolution uh, can can understand what it is they're doing. Because until that happens, it's still going to be a bunch of DJs and a bunch of Web 2.0 refugees, Web 3.0 converts like myself. So uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have so many thoughts on that. Um, I mean, most people don't care about their privacy. So they're going to wander into Web3 and not really know until they're faced with it. Um, in the context of JournoDAO, I kind of take a different approach because when a journalist comes in to use it, a working journalist comes in to use this technology, they need to look at it from the privacy perspective first. Because that's a big vulnerability if you're, and not even just in Web3, but in any context. Like if you're not using encrypted email, if you're not using, you know, ways to protect yourself and your sources, that's a huge issue. And as you begin to go further down the decentralization hole, we have to figure that technology out. Um, and also be really mindful of how privacy is used by those who are have different risk factors. Um, same with political activists. They're going to have a completely different approach to Web3. Indeed, indeed. You've given us some a lot of good points to think about. And I want to ask you a question that I tend to ask all of our guests, which is not really Web3 related, but you know, when I grew up in Web 2.0 when we thought that things were moving at the speed of light. And looking back on it now, at how fast Web3 is moving, it makes it seem like walking on a country road in Web 2.0. So how do you balance and how do you find some equanimity in this crazy place we call Web3? I think embracing slow the slow roll is actually part of it. You know, personally, I'm not really good at that balance because I tend, tend to stay wired in 24-7 as, you know, a person that's always keeping an eye on the community, um, which is not healthy. So I'm working on that. But I think that DAOs really need to embrace slow growth. And that, you know, we're in our really like our third or fourth generation of DAOs now. And the slower we can build them with more deliberation and more thought so that, you know, humanity is baked in, tokenomics is not going to throw the wheels right off the damn thing once you get going. Um, I think slow growth is something that's understated and needs to be really looked at, um, you know, small and slow. And, and then you're nimble, like JournoDAO is small because we can be very you know, flexible and fluid. And depending on your mission, I think that's that's a really good thing to be. That that makes sense. A lot of sense to me. And as an aside, my latest battle cry that's actually for a while has been that boredom is underrated. Uh, so you're here to that. Um, so just to conclude, where can our listeners connect with you online and find out more about the work you do and about the work that JournoDAO does? Sure. Um, yeah, it's pretty easy. Just JournoDAO is our Twitter handle. So, um, at J O U R N O D A O. And then my, um, Twitter handle is, uh, crystal D street, C R Y S T A L D is in dog and then street like a road. Um, so definitely ping me if you've got questions or 
want to continue the conversation. Um, we do a regular town hall on Wednesdays with Journal Dow, and we also do a Twitter Spaces on Thursdays. Well, I would highly recommend listeners join that because there's a lot of good food for thought for everybody. We want to thank Bankless Dow for supporting this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share on your favorite podcast streaming platform and Twitter at Bankless Dow. Questions, comments, suggestions? Please join us in the Bankless Dow Discord server and post on the General Legal Channel or DM our host, Mike Rabinovich, at Comeback Kid. Till next time.